So, you know, I just want you to understand that I've actually done some research on this, and, and it's very serious. Uh, there, there, there is some research, well, steady, steady. I know it's important. We don't have to play it twice, though. Um, I think we got the message. A man cold is very serious stuff. And, and what we're looking for, really, is for you to understand, for you ladies to understand how grave it is for us, because uh, it actually arrives at our head a lot faster than, than it does for you. And, uh, and so it's, it's very serious for us. Now, of course, uh, getting a little bit of empathy from women is very difficult, uh, very, very difficult. And, and so I, and I can't understand, and I can't stand this really, how, how m people look up online the WebMD. Do you have any friends or relatives who are looking up WebMD all the time? I just, oh, oh, you know, I'm not saying anything a liar, but they look up WebMD, and, and then they, they come up with all sorts of concoctions, like, I'm not saying this about a liar, but I heard that uh, if you sneeze really loud, I mean, something could happen to your voice, and uh, it's true, allegedly. So uh, what I suggest is, uh, you know, what you should do is just ignore WebMD, just go, ignore Google, go to the dark web, uh, because every conspiracy will be confirmed in the dark web inside there. And then you can find every treatment that you want inside there. Um, but look, if we, we move all the jokes aside, when a man gets a cold, it's a big deal. This is serious. Uh, and we, men, do not feel that we're allowed to get sick. We don't. We feel like we've got to push through all the time. You're like, hang on a second, is this about man today? Last week we talked about Mary. This week's about Joseph. Subtle hint. Mary last week, Joseph this week, it may be a little bit about men today. All right, there you go. Uh, we have to keep everything going. That's what we men feel like. So the cold is the one moment in our moment of our year where we get to say to ourselves, yes, I will binge on Netflix and I will take an overdose of sugar because this cold will last longer uh, this way and I will survive this way. And why do men do this is the question that you're asking yourself. Why do men do this? Because Genesis 3 told us that this is what we would do. Genesis 3 tells us that, Moses told us this through Genesis 3, that as a result of sin, the vocations that we have, the life that we have, our life would be that when we till the land, when we do our jobs, we would do it by the sweat of our brow and we would never feel any kind of success in our life. It will never be easy. So where's the let up? Where's the let up? We have no let up. So when we get a cold, of course we're going to milk it for all that it's worth. Because that's the only moment we can feel like, yes, bunny, whatever you need to call me, that's when I need it. Now, I've had some people query with me and said to me, well, you're starting a men's ministry. Surely, you know, is that insensitive in light of uh, all that's going on with women in the church? You know, that uh, women are not being ordained and only being commissioned and maybe, you know, you're emphasizing men too much in this church. And I said, well, yes, for some local churches, but we don't have this problem here at Boulder because we have a female pastor at this church here. We have female elders because we take the whole Bible. We embrace the whole Bible. We have no problems with that at all. We love that. We actually embrace it entirely. We don't decide leadership is defined based on your genitalia. We're just like, yes, God called you, serve. Fantastic. The Bible said it, let's follow it. Of course, it gets us into some problems, right? Because if you're going to take the whole Bible, it means you can't ignore the icky texts, right? There are icky texts in the Bible. Um, remember last week I said to you that uh, every text in the Bible takes you to Jesus, all right? 
and I, I shared, you know, the tent peg and the head and all that kind of stuff, and I showed you how it takes you to Jesus. Well, of course, there were, had to be a few people who were like, I don't know, Pastor. So I got a couple of emails, well, what about this one? What about this one? And one of the ones that I got was uh, from Judges 19 to 21. Judges 19 to 21. And this, I, if you've never read Judges 19 to 21, this is the story. There's a Levite, uh, there's a concubine, and there's the town of Gibeah. Sounds like the Englishman, Irishman, and Scotsman, I know. But it's not funny. It's not funny, all right? It's far from funny. Uh, and it's a really, really horrific story. It's kind of rated uh, uh, MA, you know, it's kind of mature, and it's really terrible. Some men get wasted. Uh, really badly. They arrive at this house. They want to abuse people inside this house. They end up getting this concubine. They abuse this concubine all night long. The concubine's like dying on there, and the guy, the Levite, basically sees his concubine. She's kind of dead on the floor, and he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her to a piece of her to each of the tribes in Israel. Not really the 12 days of Christmas story, really, is it? Kind of like tied those two ideas together now in your head forever, haven't I? You're like, huh, 12 days of Christmas? She's cut in 12 pieces. You'll never forget that now. You're like, you'll never sing that song in the same way. You're like, I don't know how to deal with that. So what do we do with this, right? And the question number two, question number two is this. Is it really possible to see Jesus speak through every text in the Bible? Is it really possible to see Jesus speak through every text in the Bible? Well, there's a few things you should note about that passage in Judges 19 to 21. First of all, is that it comes right at the end of the book of Judges. And this is very important because there are some ominous words at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, there were no king as well. And not no physical king, but there was no king. They did not worship God. They were not talking to God. There was no physical king, yet alone they had no idea or interest in worshiping God as king as well, as well for that. And in Judges chapter 15, four chapters before, it was the last time that God was ever the subject of a verb. It was the last time that God was ever engaged in a conversation, really, with them. I mean, you have God appear in chapter 20 of Judges, but, but they don't really listen to him. They don't really engage in the direction inside there. They never really consult God. What has happened is that men are left to run things on their own. And when men are left to run things on their own, the worst acts of depravity, the darkest forms of art, the saddest moments of history, where men line up in fields and line their weapons up and fill them with blood, where buildings are taken and schools are attacked and churches are attacked and places that we feel are safe are gone because men just go wild and crazy because God is not involved in their life. So it just compounds over and over again. And the story of Judges is saying that you can see Jesus inside here. You can see when Jesus is missing. When they don't talk to God, this is what happens to them. And there is responsibility, huge responsibility, on the shoulders of many for ignoring the word of God at that time. So, after a few thousand years of development, have we done well? Have men learnt? That was the promise that Jesus gave them. He said to them, I'm going to come from the line of David. And our brother David, oh my goodness, he was such a good king, but he was also such a mess. So much so that Jesus said to him, listen, David, you're a man after my own heart. I like you. I like you, right? But I love you, brother, but, but you've come a long way. But, you know, 
you spilled a lot of blood. You've done a lot of, a lot of crime. You've done a lot of things. So how about you don't build the temple? Uh, we'll pass that on to your sons. Because everything you've done, it's, it's a, you know, I understand. I understand the journey you're on. And you're a man after my own heart. I embrace you. You're my family. I, so it's going to be okay. But, but listen, I'm going to pass this legacy of building the temple onto your son. But I tell you this, you, I'm going to come from you in the, your line. It's going to be your line. There will be something amazing from you. And it'll be the Messiah. And I will come through this line. It'll be from your line. It's going to be okay. Something great will come from everything that you do here. Now, Matthew in the gospel is quick to jump all over this. He understands all too well the Jewish community, and he loves David. Everybody loved David. They loved David as well. And they studied him. And they studied all the different layers of inside there. So you've heard me mention Dublin Technic. I'm going to weave this into every single sermon now, since I was challenged never to do this again. Uh, I have to do this. So are you ready for some Technic insight? Here's some Technic insight for you. David's name equals 14. You're like, what? How does it equal 14? Well, that's really simple. Let's take our alphabet. So if I show you on the screens right now our alphabet. If you take our alphabet and you just put a number to it, so A equals 1, very complex in the alphabet, and the next letter in the alphabet is B, which then means it equals 2, and the next one's C, which then means it equals 3. See that? A, B, C. Do you get the sequence? Very complex, right? So if and then I took a word, the next word that I create is cab, it would be, basically it would equal 6, right? Do you, are you with me? This is not complicated math. It's not like the fifth grade of math, because we would all fail at that. This is just like, you know, below kindergarten. So I think we can cope with this. All right, so the names and the letters all mean something. Same in the Hebrew alphabet, but obviously the Hebrew alphabet is slightly different. So David, and uh, you, there are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, so David actually would be DVD, and this would be, that's what his name would be, with no vowels inside there. So then you take the numerical value of his letters, D equals 4, and V equals 6, and D equals 4, and those all together, when you add them up, they equal 14, right? Now you're thinking to yourself, what's significant about this? You're kind of like, oh, I'm so bored. I just, I didn't come here for a math lesson. I came here to study the Word of God. I, I thought it was about Christmas. He's already scared me about my obituary. I don't even know what to write about that. I'm just so confused. You should have kept the manuscript. Oh, it's okay. Let's turn in Matthew chapter 1. It's very hard to find, page 895 in your Bible. So if you have your pew Bibles, you can pull it out. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. Page 895, Matthew chapter 1. And looking at verse 17. Now you remember this, that Matthew knows this. He's very excited about David. He knows the significance of the number 14. He knows that David means 14. And so he's very excited about this kind of stuff. So this is what he says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. And you've often wondered why genealogies uh, exist inside the Bible. Well, here we go. So all the generations from Abraham to David, to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You're like, 14? The number must be important. It is. It's important. It's inside the Bible. And he mentioned it. And they know that it means that David is 14. There must be something inside it. Now, if you also know this, that in order to have a witness, in order to have a witness, you would have to be able to prove a case. You would have to have two witnesses. And a perfect witness, the perfect number is number seven. So to have the perfect witness, 
Seven plus seven is what? Oh, don't be shy. <laughs> seven plus seven is what? Oh, that's so good. Well done. Yes, 14. So the genealogies inside Matthew here are the perfect witness to the Messiah, right? This is what Matthew's laying up, embedded inside you. You think he's like, uh, he's telling you that Adam had this son and this son and this son. You're like, you're bored. You're like, no, he's telling you there are these witnesses buried inside here, these perfect witnesses telling you this. And by the way, Joseph, you're lucky number 13. Uh-huh. And what's supposed to happen next? Number 14. And what's supposed to be promised? It's the Messiah. It could be Joseph. And Joseph, Joseph is looking around saying, I think it's my cousin. I think it's my cousin. I, think, I, think, I don't think it could be me. Uh, maybe we could have a Rahab. We could have somebody else. Somebody could be imported in. He's thinking somebody else needs to be pulled into this moment. Are you feeling the pressure? Because Joseph is feeling the pressure. Question number three in the worship guide. Question number three. When you're under pressure, when you're under pressure, where do you go for help? When you're under pressure, where do you go for help? So you look at Joseph, and he looks at his family line, and it's not pretty. And there are lots of messy stories inside there. And uh, believe me, there is, there is multiple sermons that we could preach just for um, uh, the genealogy inside there because they are so powerful about how God says, I want to be inclusive, I will pull in. And let me show you how I create this line of adoption inside here. And remember that word because adoption is very important inside here. But he holds it all through there. So Joseph thinks to himself, I don't want to create more tension here. I don't need my name to be attached to anything kind of messy. I just want to be one of those names that's just mentioned, and then it says they had a son, and when again it had another son, it just passed on. So he thinks, I'm just going to keep on going. He does not talk to God about this plan. He acts without talking, right? He acts without talking. For if he talked to God, he would have to admit three things. Number one, Mary was talking to God as well. Joseph would have to admit that. Number two, that God could respond. And number three, and this is going to be very hard, that his decision could be wrong. <laughs> it's going to be hard for him because, no, he's a man. He does not need to talk. He knows things. He was born as a man. Men just know things. They don't need instructions. They don't need to talk. They don't need to converse. They don't need to ask for advice. They just know things. Who needs Instructions from a box. We can just build. You know how many times I have to slap my brothers across the face at times? I mean, I, I just say, look, just go talk to your partner. Just go talk to your kid. Just go talk to your friend. I mean, just go talk to them. The problem is that we have thousands of years of generations of weird things being passed on to us, right? And what I mean is that as a man, as a husband, a father, uh, as I shared last week, is that this legacy issue is complex. It's hard to break that cycle. My father, I mean, my father loves me to bits, right? And he grew up with his father, uh, loving him to bits as well. But his father didn't play with him a lot. And my father didn't play with me a lot, but my father loved me in many other ways. It's not a big deal. I had a great life. I loved my dad a lot. Of course, I played with my boys a lot, you know, because I was going to break the cycle. Now, when Jonah was uh, a little boy, he wanted to go play by baseball. And uh, the first day, uh, the coach, he goes and asks the uh, Jonah, uh, you know, take a position that you want to play. And uh, Jonah looked at him perplexed. A position? What position are you talking about? He looked at me and he raised his eyebrows at this point, to which 
I looked at my phone, I pulled up my Blackberry on Nextel. Um, I don't know, Nextel exists anymore now. I pulled up my Blackberry and I, and I refreshed it and I said, please send me an email. Please somebody contact me. Please make me feel like I have something to do that can distract me from this moment. And that's what I was doing, all right? So I was like, oh, eh, focus on the coach, Jonah, focus on the coach. Well, the coach uh, was not deterred by the lack of response from Jonah. So he simply uh, threw the ball at Jonah and it landed on the floor. And, uh, and I began to pray. I mean, I began to pray that I would receive more than a phone call, like, you know, ambulances would turn up and say, there's an emergency back on campus, you need to go and evacuate, like, the building or something like this. Um, and and it, was, it was kind of interesting, so I was watching this, and, uh, and then it looks as though I was just thinking to myself, ah, there's something that's going to change inside here. And, and the coach basically says, look, he utters these words to Jonah, he says, hey, son, and you'll see this here, he says, hey, son, just catch and throw the ball back to me. You know, like you did with your dad. And in that moment, the award of Father of the Year was arriving on the stage. And I was really excited about this award. I mean, it was glittery, shiny, diamonds. And Jonah looks at the coach. And then he looks at me. And then he looks back at the coach. Uh, and then he said something to this effect. He, he, he basically said, um, my dad's never done that. And, and you can see that award kind of just slowly disappearing off the stage at this point. Uh, well, it wasn't slow, it was running off the stage at this point. Never to appear again, right? Because Jonah's like, no, my dad's never thrown a ball to me. I mean, what am I supposed to do? What's a, what's a baseball? What's a bat? I have no idea. And I'm like, I'm, I think I should leave right now. Uh, because we have these cycles, right? I never played baseball. I mean, who wants to play baseball anyway? What a boring game is that? I, oh, no, of course it's a wonderful game. Uh, now, cricket, that's a great game. Uh, but let's not debate, let's not debate, because I'll win. Um, we have to break these cycles, though, don't we? We as men have to break this cycle. We have to redefine this role. Joseph, though, he can't break this cycle. He can't redefine this role. Instead, what he does, as all good men, he goes to sleep. He goes to sleep, he's like, ah, yeah, I'm going to go to bed. And it's while he's asleep that God comes and he does, he opens him up with a nudge, just a gentle nudge. God doesn't appear in the classic ways as it appears in the Bible with an angel or with fire and a burning bush or with a voice from heaven or clouds of parting and thunder and lightning. No, he just appears in this dream with a gentle nudge. He says, this thing, this miracle, this wonder, that Mary's going through right now, that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas. That's what he says. Did Mary become pregnant? Exactly how she became pregnant? Merry Christmas, Joseph. <laughs> Is she feeling sick in her first trimester? Merry Christmas, Joseph. <laughs> that same spirit that hovered over the face of the waters of creation? Merry Christmas, Joseph. That same spirit that pushed back the waters on Exodus and allowed the people to leave Egypt. Merry Christmas. That same spirit that caused Elijah to run and beat the chariots. Merry Christmas. That same spirit that would transform the disciples and the community would descend upon them and they would build a church, a movement that would transform the entire planet. Merry Christmas. That same spirit 
that same spirit is calling you to come home, to be part of the family of God. That same spirit is saying, adopt this boy. That same spirit is saying, take this woman home. She's yours. Joseph wakes from the dream, and that nudge makes sense to him. And he simply obeys the impression he has from God. You know he wanted to obey from the start, right? He just didn't want for, to ask for directions. But he wanted to obey. And Mary had already told him the answer, but he didn't want to have to admit that Mary knew the way. He just wanted to stand there. And Mary had to watch the person she loved go through all of this anxiety. Well, she's like, it's just really simple, just follow God. It'll be okay. And he's like, no, I'm just going to divorce you quietly. It'll be okay. She's like, I don't think it's going to work out. You should follow God. But he wants to be a man of God. Because this is the truth. Takes a big man, takes a big man to admit that you need the big man upstairs. Right? That's what we need. We need men of God who are able to admit that they need the man upstairs. And this is what the Spirit of God does for us. From talking all the time, from pushing us all the time. So I have a final question for you this morning. Question number four. Question number four. What does it mean? What does it mean to belong to Jesus? This is the question that once you know who Jesus Christ is, you should be asking yourself all the time, what does it really mean to belong to Jesus? It's what Joseph understood in the dream, and it came in the power of the names that he was to give this baby. For when you choose a name, you understand there's deep significance behind it. When we choose the name of our children, we want to give them part of the legacy of what we hope they have come from, the legacy of what we hope they will become, the hope that they will be for the future of this place and the future of the world that they're going to be. We hope that the name carries all of that inside it. So the angel said to him, I'm going to give you two names. And these two names, Joseph, you are to give to this baby. The first is that it will be Jesus. And Jesus means saves. That's what it is. And the second is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Which is the promise that God has made from the very, very beginning. To save the people and to dwell among them. This is the promise that God has given them from the very beginning. Saying, look, I want you to understand how important this is. From the very beginning, I wanted to save you and I want to dwell among you. Yesterday I was having lunch with this guy, a young man called Brendan, and uh, he's exploring his faith journey, exploring where he is in, in life, and uh, I had invited him over a year ago to have a conversation with him, and, uh, and he had declined, and then about a month ago he said, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's connect, and so we connected and we had lunch yesterday. And we had this great dialogue about where he was with God, what he thinks about life, and all sorts of things in his journey, and he had some great questions, some great theories, some great ideas. And inside there, of course, I, you know, I shared with him the Duplo faith technique, faith development model, a metaphor, I did, which is a sheet over there, you see, and you can pick it up if you don't know what that is, and you're wondering what it is. It's next to the, the renovation plans, subtle, eh? You go over there, you're impressed twice. Um, and so I shared with him, and he shared some metaphors as well. And mid-conversation, mid we both agreed this, and we both came up with this, and I thought, I, I said to him, I'm going to share this tomorrow. It, it works so well with what you said. It works well with what I'm actually sharing today. We have juices when it comes to church, and we really should be digesters when it comes to church. You get the difference? We don't have time 
So we eat 500 bananas and 600 leaves of kale and some ginger and three carrots and partridge in a pear tree. And so what we do is we juice it, right? And we put it down and we just blend it down and we just swallow it in 30 seconds. And we're like, yes, I have consumed and taken in everything and now I have all the nutrients and now I can go have my candy floss and just enjoy myself for the rest of the day. That's what we do. We love to juice rather than to chew. Because to actually eat means you have to go to a store, you have to buy, you have to actually cook, you have to sit down, you have to prepare the food, you have to sit down with people, have conversations with them, you have to use a knife and a fork, barbarians, and eat and allow the jaw to move up and down, allow the saliva to mix in with your food, not allow all the sugar to just spend time in your teeth so your dentists are upset with you that all the acid is destroying all your teeth. You have to allow your body to digest it and process all of that. And that's how it comes to our faith and our church sometimes. We come to church and we come to our Bible study like we're going to juice it. I want to just get it instantly. And God is saying, I actually want you to eat. I want you to eat and I want you to process it. And I want you to digest it. And I want you to take your time and don't rush it. You don't have to know everything in the Bible straight away. You don't have to know everything that's going on in church straight away. But you do need to read your bulletin. Uh-huh. I know, I know. Because there's very important information inside there. That aside, that aside, God is saying, with your walk with Him, with your walk with Him, everybody is at a different pace in life. And I love this about the church. If you pull out our app on your phone, if you look on our website and you just search under Rebound and you look up why we choose Boulder, this is one of our sentences, one of the sentences of why we choose Boulder. We choose Boulder. Why? Because this church accepts that spiritual growth takes place at different paces, at different paces. And this is the practice of Jesus. This is the patience of Jesus. And it's the model of salvation. It's why when we practice communion, which we're going to do today, it's open to all. I don't know whether you believe in God and understand what the significance is of the bread and the juice. And when God says you take this bread and you drink this juice, that you're taking part of God and saying, God, I want to be part of you. I look forward to the day when I celebrate this with you in heaven. I don't know whether you understand the significance of what you're supposed to do is confess to God before you partake of this. But we practice open communion because everybody is at a different place in their life. And God says, Come home, participate, grab the bread, grab the juice, and enjoy the fellowship of community together. And God will talk to you, and God will work with you. So when the Father, Son, and Spirit chose the incarnation model, they said, Jesus, he's not going to arrive as an adult, he's going to arrive as a baby, and he's going to grow as a child, and Joseph is going to struggle to adopt him as a father. But God saw the potential in Joseph, and he said, we're going to ask him to adopt Jesus, and we're going to ask him to take him into the family. Because when we do this, it's going to become a great example of how we take everybody else in, right? Because we promised David that it would be at the line of his line that the Messiah would come. Well, the only way to be in the line of the Messiah of David, he has to be adopted into the family. Well, the only way for us to belong to the true family of God is to be adopted into the family of God. And God says, I want to adopt you. And so Jesus says, by the power of the Spirit in your life, I adopt you. 
I take you into my life. And Jesus is calling us all the time. He says, I want to adopt you. He wants to adopt us. He wants to make us his own. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. And that's why we celebrate communion at Christmas time here. That's why I wanted us to read this final passage today. It's in Galatians chapter 4, page 1080. And I thought this is really important because I, I think in now when you read this passage of Paul in Galatians, you'll see it in new light. Because you'll see the dots connected with Joseph now. You'll see the dots connected now with baby Jesus. You'll see the dots connected with the plan of salvation. You'll start to see the whole metaphor come together in this one passage in Galatians. You're like, oh, that's where it's all about. So Galatians chapter 4, Paul understands this really well. He says, I, Paul, I'm a man. I'm a man who knows what it is to sin. I'm a man who tortured people. I'm a man who put people in prison. I'm a man who put people to death. Because they believed in you, God, I attacked them. I am the chief of sinners. And it's because the door of grace was opened, the family of God welcomed me in. And I owe so much to this God that I have been adopted in. So he then says, listen, in the Roman times, Boys were the only ones who could be adopted, and boys were the only ones who could be heirs, and so I'm going to just add another person here, girls as well. So when he writes this text, he's saying, they are the ones, he uses the metaphor, he says, they are pulled in, God does the same for us. So watch this, Galatians chapter 4, page 1080. You can mark this in your Bible, highlight this in your Bible, remember this text if you forget everything else. I mean that the heir, as long as he has a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3. In the same way also when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But here comes Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption of sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into the hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, no longer, so you're no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. If a son and daughter, then an heir through God. What Paul is saying inside this text here, that you belong to the family of God. And there is no greater honor than to be adopted into the family of God. So my challenge to you this week, as we break in the second to celebrate communion together, is to connect with family. That's pretty hard, by the way. To connect with family is not an easy task because I'm asking you to have conversations with people. I'm asking you to have conversations with people that you know, that you love, that have not had conversations with you in a long time. I'm asking you to build bridges with them. I'm asking you to connect with your family here, and I'm asking you to connect with your family upstairs as well. Connect with God and connect with each other.